HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, open year-round. Learn more at bbg.org. Hey, this is Michael Harlan Turkel from the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I've been with the station for over eight years, 350 shows, and it is the most consistent thing in my life. Every Tuesday at 3, I know to be here in studio, but I also get the the privilege of meeting such amazing people, artists, artisans within the industry. I get to learn a new factoid, a, a new way of life from these wonderful people. And I hope you do too by listening and that you donate to our summer drive. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and click on the beating heart. And we'd even appreciate monthly recurring donations to any show on the network. You could designate to the food scene, the speakeasy, and that many more. Hi, I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. This week's theme is youth. We'll have a report on how migrant children separated from their families at the U.S. border are being housed and fed. Right now, what we're very worried about is just the influx of kids created by this zero-tolerance policy. We'll also look into a program that's ensuring free summer meals for kids are only a text message away. Summer is the hungriest time of year for a kid who may not have that safety net of school meals. We discover a new home economics curriculum. I'm not trying to raise a generation of chefs. I'm trying to raise a generation of nourishers who can nourish themselves. And we meet a teen chef who's talked his way into several of New York's top kitchens. I never try and be, like, annoying about it, but I really want to get my foot in the door. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet and 3, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In the Sauce, a new podcast about building food brands. We live in a culture that romanticizes entrepreneurship and the hustle. But what I really want to hear are the stories from the trek uphill. I want the stories about the bruises and the scrapes we all get as we build our businesses. I want to hear about the roads that led to nowhere and the lessons learned along the way. And I want advice in real time. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand, because we're all in the sauce. 
Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Ann Yang, one of the rock stars behind Misfit Juicery, who started Misfit together with her friend Phil Wong in college as an answer to America's problem with wasted food. Hi, lady. Hello. Welcome. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so um, I feel like this is a movie type of story. I feel like I can see the dorm kitchen and the blender and the two of you just like playing with over-ripened food. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how it came to be and if my movie version is sort of accurate or inaccurate? Yeah, oh my gosh. Um, in this case, it weirdly is very accurate. Yeah. I think... Um, <laughs> So Phil and I went to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, and I think even though international relations is a far cry from food, it actually led us to food in a really interesting way. And I think in most of our classes, what we were learning about is about how all the issues that we really cared about end up going back to the food system in some way. So 80% of our fresh water supply is used in agriculture, so a lot of resource conflict is actually agricultural mm -hmm. cultural conflict. Or um, in one of our classes, we were learning about how one of the triggers of the Arab Spring was rising wheat prices and right. the rising cost of bread. Um, so it was really interesting how, like, in this field, it all just seemed to matter back to the food system. And mm -hmm. um, as we were learning more and more about food waste and its environmental impacts, um, the visual idea that we were wasting so much food and just in fruits and vegetables about 20 billion pounds a year, right. the statistics seemed like they were fake. Like, they were just so absurd Crazy. that it didn't seem like it could possibly be true. And it really started as a humble experiment. We had four crates of ugly peaches from one farmer named Tim. So can um, you define an ugly just yeah. because they're all God's children? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> so um, in the U.S. food system, a bunch of fruits and vegetables never make it to retail in terms of grocery stores because of cosmetic standards. Right. Um, and this is actually being amplified by direct-to-consumer food businesses where the standard for an eggplant that you get in a box at your front doorstep right. is actually even higher than when you walk into a grocery store. Right. Um, so a fruit and vegetable at the most extreme end could a carrot could have two tails um, a peach could have like a massive scar on it but right. most of the time a lot of these fruits and vegetables um, don't make it to market for things that are barely visible to the consumer right. so an apple might just be slightly too small in circumference there might be some bruising um, and there's also a really interesting part of our supply chain that I know that you also use at Haven's Kitchen mm -hmm. um, which is the Fresh Cut program at Baldor Specialty Foods yeah. um, so when carrots get stick get cut down or pineapple chunks get get uh, get cut down or romaine hearts get peeled away um a of thousands of pounds of scrap waste is being generated i know i mean yeah. i think people generally have gotten wind of this but just to reiterate the fact that carrots don't naturally get born in that little yeah. <laughs> shape with the little round top and like that those are actually major size carrots that have been cut down to be cute bite-sized carrots I still think is fascinating because where does the rest of the carrot go? Totally. I mean, it goes to waste. Yeah. And I, there's a bunch of interesting market dynamics that are contributing to the consolidation of fresh cut production. So um, retailers can make a lot more money on a Tupperware full of pineapple chunks than they can on a whole pineapple. Right. Consumers want convenience foods. Um, and I think the average consumer thinks that there's probably like a cute little old man or woman or somewhere in between cutting up all those vegetables in the right. back of a grocery store. But it's actually happening um, in major like uh, production facilities on a consolidated level and creating thousands of pounds of scrap waste. So did you know that when you were 20, I'm <laughs> guessing, and you were in the dorm kitchen? And I mean, how did you, 
Because it's one thing to be like, oh, damn, like that's a problem and everything relates back to energy and water and we do waste so much and, you know, let's, let's try to waste less. Let's try to use a water bottle or let's try to, you know, make compote or pickle, you know, but to take it and then decide to turn it into sort of this bigger, broader, ideally scalable idea as a business, like how did you make that leap? Yeah, totally. I mean, one of the best pieces of advice that you've ever given me, Allie, is that um, a lot of your story in entrepreneurship is just doing the next obvious thing and just doing the next obvious thing in front of you. And I don't remember saying that, <laughs> but I'm going to write that down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think like for Phil and I, that very much was the case, right? We are first time entrepreneurs. Um, we started you were the babies. Like yeah, you we did you start something when you were eight? Yeah, right. we were 23 years old. Neither of us have studied business. Um, and when we were bootstrapping the company, like in college, in his college kitchen, um, in his college house, we were really just doing like the next obvious thing. Like we bought four juicers off of Amazon and then we like Googled how bottle manufacturing works and we Googled what, like how to buy UBC codes. And then we like figured out what a tax like ID is and like how to file for an LLC. And and it just all kind of snowballed. What about the shelf life testing? Cause that is just that, that. Who would know about pH levels and 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 validations and all that stuff? I yeah. Mean, oh my gosh, like definitely a big learning curve. I think uh like in the beginning like we were wholesaling raw juice and then we started processing it with HPP, which right. doesn't require heat pasteurization, and that was like purely a lot of research and then um I think like anything in our business, I think that like our biggest asset really was our naivete. Like, um, just not knowing like how hard it was going to be. But also I don't think it was like a belief that like we would have, like we would be able to figure it out, but it was a belief that we would be able to find the right people to help us figure it out. Um, and so a lot of the food safety stuff honestly was like finding other people who specialize that and um, asking for help. So, I mean, basically you guys started off with a couple of juicers and an idea and then was it very was was the intention from the get go to build this into a business? I mean, was that the plan? Um, I joke and say that like misfit is something that I married to, but I don't ever remember the proposal. (laughs) (laughs) That's really what it feels like. And I think it's because like when I meet other entrepreneurs that admire so much, there really was a decision making point where it was like, okay, like I think this is a good idea. I have some traction. Like I'm going to quit my full-time job or I'm going to really focus on that full time. It's different if you're in college. Yeah. For us, it was just like, there was, um, we could see the potential in the idea growing and there was more and more traction points happening and more and more people surrounding us and giving us advice that Mm -hmm. by the time that we graduated from college, it was like we had an investment round going that allowed us to pursue it full time. So So the decision making, like it wasn't like, Oh, like I was in the shower or like I had dinner with a mentor or something. It like really was this gradual two year process where by the time I graduated, Phil and I were like all in. Were you, I mean, talk about those early days of being mentored a little bit. Like who, was it professors? Was it people, you know, business people that you met? I mean, who, who kind of gave you the, the, I guess the confidence. I mean, naivete is one thing, sure. And optimism is another and coming at it with a really good mission and like a really big heart is great. But there's so many things along the way that just get like kick you in the face you know, that you kind of need, you need almost like a phone a friend 
you know? So did you have those early on? I mean, who were the people that you kind of turned to? Yeah, totally. And we still have them today. And I think it's, um, I think what's really beautiful about it is as your business like gets to different points or like different parts of the life cycle, like new mentors come in yeah. and what it's just really exciting. It really truly feels like you're building the community yeah. around this like little universe that you're totally. trying to create. So in the beginning and still to this day, like one of our business school professors, her name's Alyssa Lovegrove was mm-hmm. really the first person who who, like saw the idea um and it's because we entered a pitch competition at georgetown and she helped us work through the pitch deck she like helped us with her financials we then competed in a business school pitch competition in texas and which she must flew- have driven the business school people crazy because <laughs> you guys weren't in business school it's true <laughs> like yeah. if you're a business like an mba kid and you're in the pitch competition and these two jerks from international relations <laughs> come and like pitch their thing you're like Okay, fine. Yeah, no, and I think, yeah, totally. I think it was, it was interesting. Like, I mean, the business school has been so supportive and luckily at Georgetown, like there really is this focus on liberal arts, um, like integrated learning, but it was like, it was definitely a funny thing. Yeah. Particularly when we were working with MBA students. Like I think they were... Um, yeah, I think they were baffled, but not necessarily like in a, (laughs) in a negative way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. And then today, like we have so many like mentors and I think that like what Phil and I really like to tell people is that this is definitely like a mentorship driven business. Like it's, um, like I think oftentimes like the narrative that is told, uh, about entrepreneurship impresses that it's like a sole founder, a group of founders who's quote unquote disrupting right. the world with their idea. I'm so glad. <laughs> I feel that that's changing. Yeah. And, and you know, maybe this is just my little world, but I feel like that's changing as more women become entrepreneurs because I think we're much more open about it's being honest about who's helped us along the way and where we don't know everything and we don't bring like the BDE necessarily to everything we do. And like, yeah, we're crushing it. Like, I think that we accept help perhaps a little bit more easily and we're more open about, you know, who's been supporting us and probably to some extent also as a function of your guys being young entrepreneurs, you, you didn't have to say that you knew everything because there was nobody who would have believed that to some extent. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we pulled the student card really frequently and it's a really good card to pull because it's honest and authentic. Like you are really just trying to learn. And um, also just like speaking from my own experience, I think this practice of asking for help is also really comes from like growing up in a low income household. Interesting. Um, and Phil and I have had like kind of conversations about this, like as right. we've like talked more and more about like where we're coming from as entrepreneurs and for sure, like growing up, I just learned like from a very early age that other types of capital, capital other than fiscal were just so much more important. Yeah. Like your relationships and the, the loss I felt as like a low income student really wasn't about the money. It was like about like the social experiences yeah. and the network. Um, and I think that when you don't have fiscal resources to support things, you just learn to start asking for help and not to be ashamed to ask for help. And right. that's how I got into school. It's how we're and, running our I business. Mean, I, you know, yeah. uh, you're one of the more generous people in my universe. I mean, I've called you crying. Like, I mean, it gets me teary eyed. I don't call people crying generally because I'm in a position where I feel like people expect me to have answers or people expect me to sort of know what I'm doing. And there are times when I really don't feel like I do. And you're one of the people that makes me feel really comfortable when I call you like freaking out a little bit. So, I mean, it's one thing to be good at asking for help, but you're also really good at giving help 
too. Oh my so gosh. Thank nice. you. And like really also appreciate you creating space for me to be vulnerable too. And to your point, I think another really amazing thing about the emergence of female entrepreneurship and like badasses like you mm-hmm. is that it, I think that like there is um, a realization that it's like pretty fucked up that we're uh, from a young age. We are told that being unemotional is professional right. and being emotional is unprofessional. Yep. And I think people are starting to realize that like really authentic brands that have power and stickiness and resonate with people um, are like are led by executive teams and leaders who like believe that leadership is intertwined with vulnerability. Yeah. Especially since I feel like the larger companies, sort of those behemoths, are, you know, they're stagnating and the only way that they can grow is through acquisition and they have to kind of look at this new playbook because there's a new playbook, right? It's not the whole, you know, I got this, I'm going to, you know, win everything. Like I'm going to sleep on my couch forever. You know, like that sort of old school story Mm. of that single founder dude who just like pursued a dream. And that's not, the story anymore not for your generation certainly and I don't think for most women founders either I mean you and I are very we come from different generations but I also have a I have a family of five kids so for me to pretend like I'm living breathing and sleeping this thing 120 percent of the time is not only disingenuous but it also wouldn't be healthy and I think our you know, the zeitgeist right now is you can be a really good leader. You can start a really good company, but you don't have to kill yourself in the process. Totally. Although sometimes, (laughs) some days it feels like I might not be living much longer, but, um, Tell me about the Chobani incubator. Jackie and Mitch are actually coming on the show next week. So I'm really excited. Um, but how did you, did that change things for you? Did that kind of kick things into high gear? How did that process go for you? How did you find out to even apply for it? Yeah. I mean, first of all, Jackie, Mitch, if you're listening to this, you're I two of my favorite are. people. <laughs> I mean, maybe one day they will. So yeah. I'm really glad that you're um, interviewing them. But so the way that we found out about the Chobani Food Incubator is it felt like when it launched, 20 people for it. That's the email was like, you should apply for this. So um, again, I think it was like, it was an, just amazing sort of gift back about like always asking for help and like being in a coachability mindset was that all these people like put us like, it it was just on our radar that like it was something that we should apply to. Um, And definitely like being in the Jibani food incubator is one of the most impactful things that happened in our business in the sense that like, we needed to understand how the food industry worked. And we also needed really an example that was operating at large scale that had good food values. And Chobani is definitely that. And I think it's so funny. Like I talk to people who are thinking about applying to the Chobani food incubator are interested in their experience. And I think there's always like a little bit of doubt that it's like as authentic as it is claiming to be like, Mm -hmm. it's like, Oh, they're giving you free money and they're giving you (laughs) access to resources. Like what is the catch? And it genuinely is that authentic. Like there it's in the DNA of Chobani that there is this genuine, like desire and belief that like the underdog can win and that right. good food can win. Um, yeah, and, and, and it's bred into the program. It may, I mean, yeah. So, yeah, because I think there's also going back to like the change in like paradigm and like the new zeitgeist, there was this sort of, you're either good or you're, or you're wealthy, yeah. you know, you're either like a company that's like crushing it or you're like struggling really hard because you're somehow like authentic and like doing the right thing. And those two things just aren't mutually exclusive. And it's been, it's been, I mean, a a long time of 
food companies trying to prove that they are scalable and at the same time, they're not going to lose their soul in the process. And I think Chobani's kind of the best example of that, which makes it a good incubator. Yeah, yeah. totally. And I completely agree. And I think another thing about the Chobani food incubator that was so powerful was that we are one of the earlier companies in our cohort, mm-hmm. um, for sure. And so it was like this awesome, like big picture, like this is how Chobani does it as mm-hmm. a very, very large company, but also just becoming so close with the other companies in our cohort and being right. like, this is what happens when you're like one, two or three years ahead. Right. And having, um, I think it's really unusual to have that, uh, that aperture being able to open and close so quickly. Like right. this is what it looks like when you have all the resources and this is what it looks like when you are scaling. So I know that you got married kind of when you were not conscious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you were like a kidnapped bride yeah. by your company. But did you, after that program, were you like, okay, now we can do this. Now I'm in. Like, has there, was there, has there been a time where you're like, I'm not so sure, or maybe I should get a job? I mean, ever? Yeah, um, it was actually right before the Chobani Food Incubator. Um, it was my last semester of college. Mm-hmm. Um, and a month before I was supposed to graduate and two weeks before finals started, I had this freak accident where I walked off a curb and I tore all three of my ankle ligaments oh and shattered part of my fibula. Wow. Um, and I couldn't walk. The whole recovery actually took like a year, but I was like actually on crutches for like three and a half months. Oh. Um, and it really was this like, crazy thing where I was contemplating all these things about, okay, like, is this a responsible thing for me to do? Like, should I go into consulting or investment banking? And Mm -hmm. like, I had like a lot of emotional guilt, honestly, for like not feeling like, like I should be making a lot of money to like Mm -hmm. help like funnel back to my family and just like a lot of existential nausea. And then when the leg break happened, it was, it Did was you kind just of say existential nausea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to just make that a hashtag. I'm yeah. sorry. Go yeah. back. Just, yeah. It's one of my favorite. I phrases really for like sure. that expression. <laughs> um, all right. Carry on. Yeah. Um, and it was like, it, I, if you believe this or not, like it was, it kind of felt like the universe or God or someone yeah. was telling me, no, like you're, you literally have to stop. Yeah. Um, and I think it was just, like literally laying in my bed on three different types of pain medication and just trying to figure out how I was going to graduate college and how to keep doing mess of it. And just like the support that came around me. And then also the fact that like it ended up being fine. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it was like, yes. I was like, I, when I got to that point, I was like, is, and even like people in our community and questioning that uh, questioning it, where it's like, is like, this is a lot of pressure on Phil. Like, are you guys going to be able to figure this out? Like, right. it seems like a form of time. And, like thanks to Phil, like honestly being a badass and like being right. the type of person who can run an Ironman without any training. Like I really think <laughs> that he put on as like endurance athlete hat right. and was like, we're just going to figure this out. And like, you take care of yourself. Like I, after we made it through though, I was like, okay, like there's a lot of shit that we can figure out. Right. Like this is what just happened. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Actually, before we take the break, I had Derek um, Quant on a few weeks ago, who's the head of operations yes. for Bonza. And he said that, um, running a food brand is is very similar to athletic training which goes to your fill thing because he was saying that you need to you have to be short term flexible long term dead focused on a goal and never quit Absolutely. and so that sounds like you and Phil <laughs> um, mostly Phil but Derek <laughs> is the best and yes. he, yeah that's awesome it's a good point okay we're gonna take a little break and then um, we'll come back and I'm gonna ask you all sorts of questions about Misfit you and the future
This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays year-round. On Thursday, August 23rd, Brooklyn Botanic Garden will host the Beer and Bocce Benefit, a one-of-a-kind garden party featuring lawn games, live music, and unlimited beer tastings by some of Brooklyn's top beer makers. Proceeds from the Beer and Bocce Benefit provide essential support for the garden's educational and community programs. And mark your calendars for the annual Chili Pepper Festival on Saturday, September 29th. New York's hottest fall tradition will set the garden ablaze with scorching bands from around the world, dozens of fiery food artisans, and hours of chili chocolate debauchery. Learn more about Brooklyn Botanic Garden at bbg.org. Hi, I'm Allie. I'm back with Ann Yang, founder of Misfit Juicery. Um, I said it earlier, but I have called you crying. And I think what's interesting about this little, like this food brand world is that you're kind of the age of your company. So there are moments where I feel like you're my big sister in a way, which is funny because I'm literally 23 years older than you, I think. Um, so it's almost like, and you were saying before how in the incubator, there are these companies that, you know, a little older and they become sort of like your big brother, big sister, even though the people, you know, you kind of become like the companies almost get like personified in a way. Um, so, when you were in the dorm room and then when you were out of the dorm room and you were <laughs> in the incubator and you were sort of year one, year two, did you know about exit? Did you know about scaling and, and distribution nationally? Like, did you, were you thinking about those things when you started this? Um, that's such an interesting question. I think we kind of had to like come up with answers about the exit thing, like when we were entering pitch competitions. So exit for all of you who yeah. don't speak this language, exit basically just means like selling to a bigger company. And uh, there are other ways to exit, but starting a food brand usually requires a lot of money. And it's generally pretty hard for food businesses, not impossible, but hard for food businesses to operate solely on the sales of the food business. So most food businesses do need capital from the outside and they either basically raise debt from banks and, um, or they raise equity from investors like venture capital and things like that. So when you are asking people to invest in your company you know, it's great and lovely to invest in a good idea. But at the end of the day, if they're investing, they want to know that they're making three times what they invested in the first place. And so you always kind of have to keep an eye, I think, at, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, a little bit on sort of like your exit plan. Who are the potential buyers out there for your company? How much uh, have other juice companies sold for? Things like that. Totally. That was yeah. a very articulate and succinct answer. Um, but I think for us, like, and our investors would agree with this, is even if, like, the company ends up exiting, like, in a traditional acquisition type way, mm -hmm. or if it's an IPO, like, either way, the strategy should always be to build the most sustainable and the best business that you can. Right. Um, so I'm going to just clarify yeah. that for anyone listening who cares. So if... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just assuming they're out there. Yeah, no, I there are people would who definitely care. appreciate that. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, basically what you don't want to do is you don't want to have investors give you a lot of money and then just spend it, you know, and not build a very tight ship. So even if you aren't spending money that you've necessarily earned through sales, the goal is to build the smartest company possible. I think there are a lot of examples, side note, of companies who were overcapitalized in the last several years, especially food businesses. I think it's slowing down now. But food businesses who got such high valuations got a lot of capital and didn't necessarily need it and use it necessarily wisely. Um, So the other option is that you IPO, which... Is there a juice company that's done that? Or is there a food brand? That, I mean, I think more of like a like a food chain that, yeah. you know, that operates that way. I think we're at the cusp of a couple of companies being able to enter the IPO phase. The last one that I can remember that happened was Blue Apron. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's almost like when you get too big to get bought. Yeah. 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 Um, that's a very, by the way. <laughs> I am having like a money person come on because my sort of very dumbed down version of all of this would is probably not like look at a book before you don't listen to me (laughs) is like if you ask someone who's actually in the money world. I'm just giving sort of my rudimentary understanding of it. But did you think about this stuff is the is the question. I think we're thinking about it more and more now that we have investors involved in the business. And Mm -hmm. I think. We're very lucky that our like our investors are investors who believe that mission purpose driven brands um, perform better on every outcome, including financial in the long run. So these right. are investors that who aren't necessarily like the stereotype of what a venture capitalist looks like, which right. is like really looking for like a ten x return. Like I think like all of our investors one are invested like in the mission and the purpose behind the business and believe that this could be a sustainable business in a for-profit model. Um, But they also like genuinely, I think believe in the professional development of Phil and I and our team. And for them, it's like also an investment in like our learning experiment experience. Right. Um, So yeah, like I think now that Phil and I think about it, like I think there is sort of um, like a negative connotation attached to like exit strategy and, for us, it's like, I think we really do feel aligned on the idea that as long as we are focused on building the best business that we can and taking care of the people who work on our team and taking care of like everyone else, like in the community, mm-hmm. the right opportunity will emerge. Yeah. Yeah. I feel similarly. I mean, I think that, you know, I do think that there's a shift right now. I think there's going to be less money just kind of like, you know, sprayed and prayed or whatever yeah. the expression is into food. Um, I think fortunately beauty is the new food, which I'm kind of, I feel like a little relief of, (laughs) you know? Um, and I do think that there are, you know, there are investors who care about a triple bottom line and there are investors who care about the environment. And I don't think the two need to be mutually exclusive. So I'm sort of hoping the same thing that, you know, we might not, we don't want to grow that fast because frankly, I've seen companies fail when they grow too quickly and they spread themselves too thin and, you know, they spend too much basically. So if you're looking for like, you know, a year over year doubling your sales, I don't know that we're going to be the company for you. But as you think more about it, is that, I mean, is that uh, you and I have talked about potentially expanding from juice, yeah, so do totally. you want to talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah. So um, at Misfit, the larger thesis of the company is that we turn supply chain inefficiencies into delicious products in order to fight climate change. And we really view juice as our pilot product. Mm -hmm. Um, And for us, it's like really like a case study on whether or not this larger idea of turning supply chain inefficiencies into delicious products can resonate. Um, So Misfit Foods is where we're going. Um, And right now we are kind of in the thick of product development. Um, We are still very early in the process, like really just trying to um, get strategy around us. And what's interesting is that, to your point, uh, Ali, that we both agree that your naivete is like your biggest strength. It's just funny because um, now that we know more about food, like any of our product ideas, we have a hundred reasons why it's not the right product idea. It's it's such yeah. a bummer. It's it is like kind Oz. of a bummer. You've yeah. seen behind the curtain. Totally. Yeah. So it's I never would have thought this, but like it, I think it's like what we're trying to figure out is like obviously we're trying to be really data driven and like use design thinking to really pick a product that is both solving the food waste issue for our suppliers, but, but also, also genuinely sense. like right. makes sense for the consumer and is uh, like resolving a pain point and knowing like what we know about the food industry. It's like, it's just crazy. Like, I think we really have right. to work on getting the courage to try something, even though right. we think it might be flawed. Well, I was thinking yeah. <laughs> a lot about it because I was thinking about how, you know, from the consumer point of view, it makes a lot of sense. I associate misfit with like trying to, you know, fight food waste, right? So anything, any product that you put out that I feel like uses uglies or unwanted or misfits as a consumer, I'm down for, right? And it makes sense from your mission. Where it gets complicated is the supply chain is different. The buyers are different. It's a different part of the grocery store. You have to make all new relationships. You have to build all new sort of you know, systems basically for a product that isn't what you're in your lane for. The good news to me, and I was thinking a lot about this, was, you know, I feel like years ago, if you were a juice company and you quote unquote pivoted, let's say, or added a product that wasn't, then somehow you were signaling that all was not well with the juice, right? But now I feel like because of how connected consumers are to brands, mostly because of social media, they'll, they'll expect something else from you. You know, I feel like this, this is actually a really cool time and I hate the expression lifestyle brand, but in the sense that their allegiance isn't to the juice, it's to the brand, you know, it's to the mission. So kind of whatever you put out for them, that, that, that makes sense with that. If you can figure out the logistics of it, you, you know, I, I think you're, it's the right time as opposed to several years ago. Totally. And I think one of the most impactful business things that I've like learned about is the golden circle. Ooh, that's tell me about the golden circle. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's articulated by this guy named Simon Sinek um, uh, in a TED Talk. And basically his argument is that people buy... Sinek as in like cynical? Um, S-I-N-E-K. And I may not be saying his name correctly. That's okay. But basically his argument is people buy why you do something, not what you make or what you do. Um, So his greatest example is Apple, whereas that most everyday companies um, in the world who are not necessarily brand focused will... um, 
the communicate to the consumer what they do, how they do it, and they never get to the why. Right. And basically what he's saying is the reason why Apple is so powerful is they start with the why, mm-hmm. then they tell you how, and then they tell you what. So for Apple, basically, and if they were a normal company, they would say, we make amazing products that are easy to use and beautifully designed. Mm-hmm. And that's how most companies communicate. But instead, what makes Apple so powerful is that they say, they start with a why, they say, we believe in disrupting the status quo. Right. We believe in thinking differently. We do that by making products that are beautifully designed and easy to use, which is so much more powerful. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, yeah. So basically what Simon Sinek is arguing is that most companies don't know what the why of their company is. I find that all the time. Yeah. And I I hate to interrupt you and then we can go back, but I, I hold on with like firm, tight grips onto the idea that because we have a why because our why is so crystal clear to us, the other stuff will work out. If, if we are smart, you know, we can't be spending money and we can't have a product that costs more to produce than, it, than we're selling it for, clearly. But if we can figure out and learn what we don't know, you know, and ask the right people, it's, I feel like when there is a great flushing out of brands that the world doesn't need another fill in the blank, because they don't have the why, you know, I feel like there will be a reckoning on some level at some point when the economy adjusts and the brands that have the why. And I love that there's like some codification to this and I'm definitely going to be watching his Ted talk and Googling my face off, but I love that. And I, and, and you have a why you have a great why. And not only that, but you communicate that why very, very well which I'd like to hear about also, because your, your communication is great to the outside world. Everyone knows what you stand for. Everyone knows what your product is, who you are. You know, so did, was that always the case? Were you always good at telling the story? Do you think you've gotten better at it? <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, when you're in the sauce, it definitely, there's always more room for improvement. Um, right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think one is like coming from a very authentic place. Like this is like genuinely like why Phil and I started the company was right. this interest in food waste. So I think like w- the authenticity makes it easier to communicate. Right. Um, it's true. Right. Yeah. And I think the other thing is uh, we went through a rebrand um, and the rebrand was a very emotional process. Mm-hmm. Like before we went to the rebrand, like it was, great packaging but it it was not like a scalable packaging system and it didn't communicate our social mission well and that really was like the scope of work like in our request for proposal was that like we were trying to figure out how to articulate this idea of being a misfit in both agriculture and in life and like how we could use that emotional connectivity of the fact that like everyone feels like an oddball at some point and the really bizarre universality of that feeling like into this food waste problem and we used a, a great studio named gander in brooklyn and Mm -hmm. mike and katie are amazing they're the partners there and i think what was really amazing about working with them and we recommend them to everyone is that um they're brilliant designers but they're also therapists like when you're going through a rebrand you have to ask like very intense questions about what is it like why are you doing this like if misfit was a person like what would they be like like what are they not like like what makes them upset what makes them happy that's so smart in my case i'm i'm i have to redo my whole website and my whole pos system and everything because it's gonna stop like tomorrow (laughs) if i don't and the people that I'm working with, this incredible company out of Philly called Spark, 
um, they want to sort of refresh and update my little H logo, Hmm. which has been for some reason, very emotional for me. I kind of understand speaking back to Apple, you should go look at their first logo. It's like a tree, a sketch of a tree with roots. I mean, it's really fascinating. It has nothing to do with like what you think of as the iconic Apple because they actually decided about a year later to rebrand because they knew that they wanted to be bigger. Totally. Um, And I mean, it is an emotional thing. And I mean, we spend a lot of time just internally at Havens kind of, you know, which Jungian archetype are you? You know, we're the, we're the mentor. We're like the cross between Glinda the Good Witch and Yoda, you know, (laughs) like the forces in you, we're just going to help you click your heels, you know, that kind of thing. And we do spend a lot of time talking about it, but it is a very emotional thing. And I do think that there are a lot of companies out there that, that probably don't have that connection to their identity as clearly. So you were talking about the rebrand. Yeah. Um, so I think Mike and Katie facilitated an amazing experience where we were forced to get really uncomfortable with like trying to figure out like what Misfit is and like mm-hmm. why it was important to us and like why it would be important to the world. And I think going through the exercise not only helped us like better articulate it on the website and our packaging, but also just in our own lives. Yep. Um, and also I think uh, – it helped me articulate this view that I have on brands um, and as someone who loves brands and really believes that um, there are more and more consumers who are values-based purchasers, as you mm-hmm. just mentioned, is that I think brand, great brands at the end of the day is just an excellent external communication of an internal set of values and beliefs. Oh, wow. What a good quote. <laughs> Thank you. My paper is getting filled up and I can't write it on the back because then I won't see the questions that I have for you. So everyone should just see a picture of this little list of questions. External communications of internal... Um, an internal system of beliefs yeah. and values. Um, and so I think like in my like weird, like radical, like if I could change how business is done world, like I would actually suggest that the like the creative team's um, and more companies talk more closely, like with the culture and the HR teams. Yeah. Um, I had, yeah. I had our graphic designer on last week and she, I said sort of like, what's your number one thing that you wish people would know or that you would like to tell emerging brands? And she said, start earlier yeah. because even though the graphic isn't necessarily the stuff you're talking about, if this company were a person, if they were in second grade, what would they do? And da, 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 da. it is such a part of the identity because the, the line that you use, the font that you use, that, you know, all of that is related to the the personality of the brand. And she was saying that people come too late and then they expect you to just come up with a brand for their idea. But it's a very, it's an emotional and it's like a, it's, it's almost like a physical kind of exercise. You're putting this thing through this, this pressure chamber almost to try to figure out who it is and what it stands for. Um, and then, so you guys then after the rebrand, then you, you were able to sort of speak more cogently about it. And then you feel like that's when things really kicked up with your communication. Yeah. I think, um, I think that people understood the idea more quickly, like Mm -hmm. from like the visual assets that Gander created. And I think it, um, also just helped us to tell the story in a more articulate way. And I think also we always knew that there was this connection between like agricultural misfits and like this emotional identity of being a misfit yeah. that really was going to drive like the why of our brand, but we didn't know how to connect it that right. well. And 
um, going through the process of the rebrands, I think helped Phil and I articulate it. Yeah. I mean, I think about it all the time. Like if you feel like sort of a social or emotional outlier, it would really suck to get thrown out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You could, if you want to use that on your, on your label, you can anyway. Um, a couple more questions before we have to wrap up, but I guess if you had to choose a number one, you know, piece of advice, you're looking at you and Phil in the kitchen and you could talk to those people, however many years later, five years later and say, this is the one thing I'd really like you to know going forward. What would it be? Um, I think that the binary between professional and personal is bullshit. Uh Um, And the reason why I think that's like specifically true in entrepreneurship is that um, if you want to start a company or help like be the first employee of a company um, or you're just invested like in companies that are trying to grow, um, you're kind of like taking this bet that this thing that I'm spending 40, 50, 60 hours a week on should mean more than a salary and it should be mean more than a financial transaction right. and that it's worth it um, to try to find something that you love to do. Yeah. Um, and that like your work then becomes deeply personal. And yeah. I think like in a lot of people's lives, they're like, Oh, like work life balance or professional and personal or yeah. whatever it is. And I think at the end of the day, like it is in it. I think about this a lot. Like it is an insane privilege to be able to think about how to love your work. Yes. Like most people in this world don't no. have that privilege. That's like they true. don't get to think about how their work might be more than like a financial ticket. And if you're operating from that place of gratitude, like everything seems less difficult Yeah. because you just realize that automatically, like this is such an immense privilege of a question to be able to say, okay, yeah. like what do I love to do? Like yeah. that is an insane privilege. I think about it every day yeah. and I get to do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't get over. I feel like I have sprinkles of stardust yeah. almost daily. What's the most fun you've had? Um, oh my gosh. I think the most fun, I, th- I think Phil and I would agree with this is the most fun has been like thinking about how to make our team happy Yeah, that's <laughs> or like, awesome. um, and it, I mean, in the beginning it was like, our job was to talk to people who are smarter than us, which mm-hmm. was like, it's so fun. Like, it's like kind of cool to be like, okay, like my job every day is to find someone who's smarter than me in this topic and right. talk to them. And totally. then when your job becomes, okay, now I get to hire people who are smarter yeah. than me. Like that's like even more of a privilege. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. My last question. I like asking everyone this. If you had to write a book on starting a brand, you know, building a CPG, blah, 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 emerging brands, yada, yada, either what would you title it or what would be sort of your chapter one or what would be kind of the the thesis that you'd like to get across? Yeah, I I've been talking a lot about this like in investment conversations and for me, I feel like there's this other thing that I'm trying to get on the table as an entrepreneur which is this conversation around socioeconomics mm-hmm. and around this question of access and um and it's because like I had this crazy gift that I did not deserve which was that 
this Bill Gates like paid for my college and I didn't like it was like this crazy thing and I'm like a lot of people are like oh like you deserved it was merit based but also it was like it really was like a huge stroke of luck that I was like in the right place at the right time and I filled out the right application right and Mm -hmm. so the fact that I was able to graduate from college debt free is the only financial reason why I'm able to pursue this I totally just got reason um and like otherwise like I would be an investment banking or consulting a hundred percent. So it is this like big gift that was given to me. And there's a lot of people who come from my background who will never get that gift. And there's like all these things attached to it, which is like psychological safety around pursuing entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. the social networks that like my parents have never owned a cell phone. Right. Um, and like, I like didn't know what private high school was when I got to Georgetown. Like there's just like a lot of different things. Yeah. So, um, and like working through that emotionally has been the most intense thing that I've done on a personal level. And so I think the book would definitely be about that. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> the final question. We're going to end with gratitude. Yeah. Um, And David, uh, if you're listening, you're in Denver, and I hope it's cooler there than it is here. Um, Thank you, Matt, for being our engineer for this episode of In the Sauce, and I will check you out next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 